But pray with me and then we'll get into our text for this morning. Father, we're thankful that we can come here to sing praises to your name. And we're thankful for all those who are involved in the music ministry, those who play instruments and those who sing. And Father, we're just thankful for the blessing of great lyrics and songs that different men and women have written just so that we could be blessed in praising you. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful for that infinite variety of of melodies and words that can come from um, just uh, language and from music. We're also thankful for your word, which is that living, active, powerful, uh, sharper, piercing, judging uh, blessing that you have given us so that when we read your word, it enters into our hearts and performs the work that you have intended for it to perform we're thankful that it is the fire that consumes and the hammer that shatters rock and that as we study it it changes our lives to be more like jesus we pray that as we look into your word this morning and consider it in light of many things that father we would leave here marveling about what you did that first day of creation And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just say that, uh, you know, you went on a a week vacation to Hawaii and a friend emails you and says, hey, so so how was your vacation? And you say, well, the first day we went to the beach. And then you tell them what kind of summarize what you did that first day. And then the next day we went to the North Shore and watched the surfers. And then you kind of summarize it and you go through the whole week. Now, what do you think the chances are of your friend thinking that you were there for hundreds of millions of years? (laughs) That each of those days you talked about were really millions and millions of years. Well, no one would ever do that. Uh, Yet this is how many interpret the scriptures. Uh, The Bible clearly states that God did it in a week and And other passages let us know it means week and that he did it in six 24-hour periods. And it's very clear. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. And yet many people want to read into the passage millions and billions of years. And you might wonder, well, how is that? How do they do that? And you might be wondering why they do that. Well, we're going to find out a little bit this morning as we consider some more background information. Remember, I told you that Genesis is is so fiercely attacked, and it's really one of the most important and foundational books in all the Bible, that uh, there is just information, background information, and introduction material on it that just seems to go on forever. And so what I'm trying to do is spread it out over many sermons and give you some each day. And so you'll see after we get through um, these first verses just how much information uh, is really needed to defend the scriptures and really to understand the text well. So we're spreading out this information this morning, and you'll see when we get to it in just a minute. But so far, we've looked at verse 1. And verse 1 is pretty plain and simple. It's straightforward. And yet we saw how much information was there and how amazing it was. Uh, Verse 1 of Genesis 1 is just an overview of everything. When it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's just kind of the summary statement of everything that's going to happen all the way through the chapter. 
And uh, though we're not told everything we would like to know about what happened at creation, God does very quickly summarize what happened during the creation week. He does spend more time telling us what happened on the sixth day because that's when man was created and that's what chapter two is all about uh, where man and his creation is described in more detail. But if you have your Bibles, look at Genesis one and follow along as I read verses one through five. The word of God says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning one day. So this morning, what I want to do is we're going to look at verses two through five and note four features of the first day of creation. But before we do that, we're going to look at some background issues that relate to our text that really kind of come into play in the verses we're going to start looking at today. Men have always had a hard time submitting to God. They just don't like God and uh, they feel convicted uh, when they think about God and scared and fearful and they want to enjoy their sin unhindered. And so men find it convenient to reject God and to ignore his word. Uh, John writes in John chapter 3 verses 19 and 20, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. All men suppress the truth of God, the creator in unrighteousness. God has made it evident. Paul says in the uh, Romans one has made it evident. It can be clearly seen through creation and what has been made that God exists, that there is a creator. It can be seen just because things exist and things don't come from nowhere. It can also be known that God exists because he has put his law in our heart, kind of an instinct of right and wrong. Not only that, he has given us um, a conscience that accuses or defends us. And all of these things leave men without excuse. In addition to that, we have things like the Bible and all the things that God has done, which are fall into the realm of what is called special revelation. But just creation alone is enough to condemn people for rejecting what God says is evident in them and outside of them. We learned last Sunday night uh, about uh, a man named uh, Pedocles, a Greek philosopher who tried to explain how everything came into being. Uh, he said that there were kind of uh, forces that were happening, opposing forces, contradictory forces, you know, love and hate and light and darkness and all these kind of opposing things. And they were all kind of colliding and kind of formed this uh, human and animal junkyard of parts. That there were heads and, you know, fingers and tails and legs and arms and torsos. And, you know, they're all kind of eyeballs. They were just kind of all around the place. 
And then over time, these kind of ran into each other and collided and stuck together and beings came into existence. And, and that's how all the, you know, the fancy creatures of Greek mythology kind of came into being. And, and these creatures lived on earth, but then some of them just because had a hard time uh, existing on earth. And so over the course of time, some died out and some, because they found it easier to live, survived. And that's why we have the creatures we have today. We don't have any bulls with human heads and things like that anymore. No sphinxes or things like that. But uh, there used to be, but now there isn't. And does that sound familiar to you in any way? Think about that. Does that sound like anything you've ever heard? Maybe Darwin's theory of evolution and the survival of the fittest. Well, Empedocles lived in 450 BC and Darwin lived in the 1800s. Empedocles, having arrived at a naturalistic explanation of everything, was given over to greater delusions and eventually committed suicide by throwing himself into Mount Etna, an active volcano. Others, though, came along and proposed similar theories, theories where you didn't need a creator. Series, uh, theories where you kind of explain things naturalistically. Darwin was uh, one of those people. He was even in competition with the, uh, another young man who had similar ideas than his and, uh, and Empedocles' ideas. And, and, and he actually was in a hurry to write his paper so he could get his views posted at the same time so everybody know that he didn't steal them from the other young man. And though virtually everything Darwin believed is now denied by scientists today, neo-Darwinism is alive and well. They have rewritten the story and rewritten the story and changed the story and changed the story until it's still they're promoting a form of Darwinism which Darwin never believed. And it's the lie that matter is God. That matter is eternal, that it's always existed, that matter, though not intelligent, though matter has no volition, matter has been able to create life out of non-life and construct complex engineered creatures on its own, though it has no intelligence and no volition, so that all the beings we see today are the random happenings of chance and time and the God matter, which is not intelligent. Though scientists have never observed uh, macroevolution ever taking place, they've never seen one kind turned into another, one species turn into another. Many scientists, the majority of scientists, believe it by faith. It's not scientific. Their way of escape when put under scrutiny is millions and billions of years. Why is that? Well, as they look at it, because they don't see evolution taking place, they must have said, well, it must have taken place a lot slower, so let's keep adding years until you get to millions and billions of years. And that way we have enough time for enough accidents to take place so that good accidents can happen, so things can turn into other things and the accident of life spring from non-life. And yet... The problem with this is mutations cause animals to evolve downward, not upward. When, you, when an animal goes under a mutation, what happens is 
is one of two things. Either it can't reproduce or if it can, it reverts back to what it was. Because there's actually parts in the cell, the DNA code, which fight against mutation. The very mechanism that supposedly caused us all to be here. Mutations remove information from animals. They don't add information. DNA is organized information from an intelligent being. It's exceedingly complex. In order for evolution to happen upward, some intelligent being must be able to add information to strands of microscopic DNA so that a creature does everything it did before and something else better. Of course, DNA is the blueprints for all living things. Scientists have never observed a single mutation where information was added to DNA. In fact, it's impossible. It's impossible for non-intelligent life to create organized intelligent information. They've never seen it happen. It can happen. It won't happen. It doesn't happen. Certain situations in nature can weed out certain groups of animals causing de-evolution or variation in species, but no new information is ever added to DNA. For instance, during the Industrial Revolution in England, there was a lot of factories, they didn't have pollution control, and they were just pumping all this soot and junk into the air, and pretty soon it started to just settle on everything. Well, at that time, there was this creature there, uh, a small moth called the pepper moth. Its normal appearance is white, with it looks like somebody sprinkled pepper on it. That's why it's called a pepper moth. Every once in a while, you actually get a black moth, but they're pretty rare. They're pretty rare. Usually you get the white ones. Well, what happened was in the Industrial Revolution, because everything was covered with soot, the white moths became very apparent. So the birds began to eat them, leaving what? The more rare black ones to breed. Pretty soon the black ones became more prominent. And people said, well, see, there's evolution. Survival of the fittest. Well, I just want you to know, the black moth is still a, a moth. It's still a peppered moth. And as soon as they cleaned up the city, the white ones came back in dominance, as it is today. That's not evolution. You can take dogs, you know, some dingoes, and you can... Breed them and, and isolate ones with shorter legs or longer hair or whatever. And over the course of time, you can make a whole bunch of dog, you know, breeds like we have today. People have made them by isolating animals that have certain characteristics. But if you take all the, the breeds of dogs today and you put them into one giant kennel and feed them, what happens after several generations? Dingo. Because you have a huge variety, a huge variety of variations within a kind. We studied last uh, two weeks ago how I showed a picture of two very dark skinned parents who gave birth to one really bright white child, not an Ibano, and a very dark skinned child. So how is that? Variation. Variation. There's huge variation God has created. That is not evolution. Evolution means different kind. You know, the mouse turns into the bunny rabbit type of thing. 
You know, evolution says blue whales. Blue whales are related to mice. And hedgehogs. And bats. Think about that. And you could barely, you couldn't even fit a, you know, a blue whale in the building. They say, yeah, well, they're all related. They all have a common ancestor. Yeah, it's God. And it's true that some bacteria become resistant to certain uh, things like, you know, penicillin or whatever. And you know why that happens? That's not because evolution takes place. They don't, they don't tell you this. But what happens is, is all the ones with greater information are more susceptible and they die out, leaving the ones with less information. That's de-evolution. The lies about the age of the earth have come so fast and so furiously for so long that pretty soon they begin to wear some of the Bible teachers and pastors down. I mean, the, the usage is people just used to read the Bible and go, yeah, it was a week and it happened about 6,000 years ago. It even happened to Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, as a young man, started reading all of these men who were proposing millions and millions of years. And he began, well, maybe like the, you know, maybe we don't know. He started to doubt the word of God. The delusion that affected Spurgeon started with James Hutton in 1726 to 1797, a Scottish doctor and farmer who proposed the ideas of catastrophism, the idea that that the Earth's history was punctuated with huge catastrophes like giant meteorites striking the Earth, causing things to change, stirring things up, so to speak. And then in between, there was gradual change. Things began to grow and kind of evolve gradually. There was gradualism over the time, punctuated with big catastrophes. Hutton's ideas were added to by Charles Lyell, who was a lawyer and geologist, who wrote the principles of geology in 1830. Lyell proposed the theory of uniformitarianism, the idea that things have always considered continued pretty much the same. The lie that Peter refutes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-9, through 9, where he says that the false teachers come on the scene saying, "...all has continued just as it was from the beginning of creation." Except now they just drop off creation. They just say all has continued the same. Because everything came from nothing or matter has always existed. Thus it was the idea of gradual change and the idea of uniformitarianism that that things have always pretty much happened the same that Charles Darwin grabbed onto, modified a little bit in relationship to animals and came up with his idea of the survival of the fittest which was nothing more than a rehash of what um, Potocles said. Darwin was strongly influenced by Lyell's ideas. In fact, the two were close friends. But there's a problem. If you're going to have gradual change, if you're going to have life popping out of non-life, if you're going to have that non-life slowly morphing into other kinds and other species so that everything has a common ancestor, you need a lot of time. So you better get some millions and billions of years in there to make it happen. So there's enough uh, time to have enough accidents happen so that evolution can occur. But we all know right? We all know that when your car gets in an accident, is it better before or after? Before, before. 
unless your bumper was already bent and you got an accident and straightened it. I don't know. Uh, Usually that doesn't happen. So mutation, the whole mechanism, supposed mechanism of evolution doesn't work. So because they haven't observed it, they have this huge problem. You have to introduce millions and billions of years so that you can give evolution a time to accidentally bring everything about. Spurgeon, at age 21, preached this on September 2nd, 1855. Can any man tell me when the beginning was? Years ago, we thought the beginning of this world was when Adam came upon it. But we have discovered that thousands of years before that, God was preparing chaotic matter to make it a fit abode for man, putting races of creatures upon it who might die and leave behind the marks of his handiwork and marvelous skill before he tried his hand upon man. In other words, God created this whole world. It's called pre-Adamism, the idea that there was this pre race, this pre-humanoid race before Adam, that the earth is millions and millions of years old and all these people came and died and that's why there's fossils in the geologic geologic strata and um, that's why all the dinosaurs came and died and all these things. Basically all that stuff happened. That's why we find cavemen because they were very primitive and dumb and so what happened is God knitted. It was kind of a failure so he wiped them all out and when we get to Genesis 1, God's recreating everything from scratch because the first time he tried he failed and that's what Spurgeon brought into why because very well educated men who were respected in the academic circles were making dogmatic statements about the age of the earth being millions of years old and Spurgeon feeling the pressure caved in as a young man but later he got his act together in a sermon preached 31 years later after the, one, the quote I just gave you, 22 years after Darwin's Origin of Species was published, Spurgeon addressed the theory of evolution saying this, quote, In its bearing upon religion, this vain notion is, however, no theme for mirth. For it is not only deceptive, but it threatens to be mischievous in a high degree. There is not a hair of truth upon this dog from its head to its tail. But it rends and tears the simple ones. In all its bearing upon scriptural truth, the evolution evolution theory is in direct opposition to it. If God's word be true, evolution is a lie. I will not mince the matter. This is not a time for soft speaking, end quote. So Spurgeon finally realized, okay, I see where this is taking us. But many pastors did not and have not. Sadly, many pastors were not uh, so discerning as Spurgeon and they swallowed the millions and billions of years all the way down to their gullet. And yet they still wanted to believe the Bible because they were Christians. So they wanted to believe the Bible and they wanted to believe the evolution and they wanted to believe 6,000 years and they wanted to believe millions and billions. Well, they just don't work. So what are you going to do about it? Well, unless you can show how millions and billions of years fit in the text, you're in trouble. Because the Bible is on a collision course with what scientists have been saying. And they have constantly changed their views. You know, a lot of times we think, well, science says... Well, first of all, there's a lot of Christian scientists who believe in a young earth. Really smart guys with double doctorates and stuff. It's not like a bunch of seed picker, ignorant guys believe the truth and, you know, all the smart guys don't. John Morris in his book, A Young 
the young earth, which is an excellent read if you want to just learn more about this, says that in 1850, Spurgeon's Day, scientists said the earth was 25 million years old. That, that's what they told Spur, in Spurgeon's Day. The earth is 25 million years old. That is the truth. The problem is, is by 1900, scientists then said the earth was 100 million years old. That is the truth. Then they said in 1960, the earth was 2 billion years old. That is the truth. Now they're saying the earth is 4.6 billion years old. That is the truth. You see the problem? They have to keep increasing the age of the earth in hopes that it will give them enough time to have enough accidents to bring about something that can happen by accident but which they must have, because if they don't have it, then they'd have to believe the Bible. And it scares them. Here's some ideas. Here's some of the ways that men have tried to, you know, say we believe the Bible and still give room for evolution and millions of years to stick in the cracks. Theistic evolution. Theistic evolution is basically, they give God the really hard task, creating life from non-life. So they let God start things and then God abandons it and just lets evolution take its course and here we are. Secondly, there is what is called progressive creation that God has created all along in different stages. He's created different creatures and different things over the course of time that it wasn't in a week. It was just over the course of time. More recently, Hugh Ross has championed this view. He's a favorite of James Dobson, has promoted his version of progressive creation. He believes in the Big Bang occurred 16 billion years ago. Four times what more scientists are saying now. And he believes in death and bloodshed and disease existed before sin, before Adam and Eve. That the days of creation were not literal days. They were huge periods of time. That Noah's flood didn't flood the whole earth. That all the animals didn't get on the ark. That the ark wasn't this gigantic thing. It was just a little local event. It was a bad rainstorm in a short area. He believes that man-like creatures existed in the past before Adam and Eve. And they were really dumb and they scratched things on cave walls. And over millions of years, God created new species, a little at a time, progressively. What's really scary is Dr. Ross's books are published by Nav Press, the publishing arm of the Navigators, who state, quote, we considered our privilege and our calling to stand behind Hugh Ross with his support of his, uh, with, with our support as his publisher, end quote. They think it's good. Also, there's the day-age theory. I said, what's that? Well, each of the days of creation wasn't actually a day. It was a huge, huge period of time, millions of years. So God created the light and it was millions of years. You know, and then he created plants, millions of years. Then he created the millions of years. You got it. Um, the day age theory. Then there's the gap theory, which proposes that there's this huge gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Basically, God created the heavens and the earth. And then what he did is he said, okay, I'm going to let evolution happen. Just let it all happen. Life sprang out of nothing and everything evolved and died. And finally it was such a mess. God said, okay, okay, I'm going to um, destroy it all. It's all ruined. I'm going to waste it all. And then I'm going to go through the six days of creation. So you stick all that, anything you want in between verses one and two and just cram it all in there. Anything you want, it fits in there. 
You just keep stretching that out and make it as big as you want. Then there's the framework hypothesis, which is so weird and exotic that it's just hard to even explain. But in a few little words, this is what it is. That um, the days in Genesis 1 aren't days. They aren't even geologic ages. They're symbolic expressions of overlapping stages in the evolutionary process. And they aren't even chronological. Okay. So you say, okay, so those are some of the things that men have come up with to try and uh, appease the ever-changing views of scientists and still say they believe the scriptures. The problem with these views are many, but the basic ones are they promote death before sin. The Bible said God made everything perfect and Adam and Eve sinned and then following sin was death. They say the other way around. They promote the fall of Satan after huge ages of time. They reject the plain meaning of the text. And worst, probably the the worst thing is the implications of saying that it's not true. Because what you do is you basically trash biblical authority, you trash biblical inspiration, you, you trash the truthfulness of Jesus, you trash the truthfulness of the authors of Scripture. Um, the Bible is not true. The Bible is not reliable. Jesus could not be the Savior since he lied to us when he affirmed creation. So that is some of the problem. So history has shown that as soon as you give Away. As soon as you like say, okay, okay, we'll give you millions and billions of years. Then that leads to doubting the Bible more and more until pretty soon the rejection of the Bible altogether. But the, the, listen, you don't need to accommodate anybody. You need to please God and believe God. God is the one who was there. God who was the one who made it. God is the one who gave us his inspired word. We could just believe God and let men do their thing. But we don't need to worry that, oh, no, well, you know, but they said this and they brought up this and I don't know the answer. So they can talk to God about it. They'll see him soon. Now, let's just register in your mind. No one ever thought that it was a good idea to try and fit millions and billions of years into the creation count until men came along and promoted ideas that were contrary to the Bible. Lofty speculations raised up against the knowledge of God. And we don't need to accommodate those people. If you want to know more about the age of the earth, uh, go to our website, go to the Sunday night classes, the creation versus evolution, and listen to the two lessons on the age of the earth and on chronometers. Those two deal with the age of the earth in some detail, will give you a lot of ammo. The people who were there those nights just kept saying, whoa, whoa. Whoa. I mean, they didn't know. Why? Because they don't tell you all the information they're feeding you in textbooks and science classes is all biased information, assuming God doesn't exist, assuming the supernatural doesn't occur, assuming the Bible is just a mythical book. And so they strain out everything that gives credence to the truth. And they just lie to you relentlessly. And so we're uncovering some of those lies on Sunday night. Okay, that's a little bit more introduction. Now let's look at the four features of the first day of creation. First, God made matter. Look at verse 2. Verse 2. 
where we read, the earth was formless and void. Just stop there. This does not mean that the earth already existed and there was this pre-humanoid race that was destroyed and everything was messed up. All it's saying is, is in the beginning, when God started creating that first day of creation, he made the matter and it had no form. It was just empty. It's kind of like this. You're going to make some sugar cookies. So you get all the ingredients. You know, was it flour and eggs or baking powder? I don't know what's inside of sugar cookies. Sugar, I guess. Um, anyways, you make the sugar cookies. And um, you, you get all the ingredients and you mix them together. And then you have dough. And then you roll it out and it's just kind of you know, formless. And then you get those cute little stamps and you stamp them. And now they got a shape. Okay? So at this stage, it seems we just have matter. Matter, water and minerals, elements, things like that. Um, and you have to remember that when Moses is trying to describe, how do you describe what was there before anything was there? What kind of vocabulary do you use? You're talking about what? Like, let's just say God made all the matter and just suspended it out in the black darkness of outer space. Um, what do you call that? junk in space you know what do you do so we have to remember that moses is trying to communicate something he has never experienced before he doesn't know anything about this this is brand new stuff god is just beginning his creation apparently the earth wasn't formed then and we'll see why in just a minute now as a side note and i just have to bring this up because um there's so many things that are interesting. You have all this water and you have all this matter in space. And some people have problems with this because when you get to the flood in Genesis 6, you have all these people saying, oh yeah, well, you know, you guys say, oh, the whole earth was all covered with water. Sure, sure. Where did all the water come from? You know, and then and, and did it cover Mount Everest, 29,000 feet above sea level? And not only that, where did it all go? Did it like, evaporate into space? So mockers love that kind of stuff. But of course, since we're Bible-believing Christians, we have the answers. You would just tell them, this is what you tell them. Um, <laughs> the waters are still here. A lot of people don't realize this. Why? Because, you know, we live on land. We're land creatures and we think the land is huge. But remember, you know, like when we were looking at the missions moment and they showed the picture of the globe, there's a lot of blue there, isn't there? A lot of blue. Do you know if you were to take all the land masses and average them out so they were all one elevation, all the land on the surface of the earth would be covered with water two miles deep. The water is still there. A lot of that blue area in the globe is really deep. If you average out all that, so there's plenty of water to do the trick, two miles deep. So keep that in mind, because a lot of people think, oh yeah, well that, you know, that's, where'd all the water go? Well, it's still there. Go out to the beach and look out to the Pacific. There it is. Secondly, Mount Everest was created by the flood. It didn't exist before the flood. When the flood happened and all the water was moving, falling down and the floodgates were opened and, and there was all this subterranean water that, uh, there's still tons of it there. Um, uh, all the subterranean water, there was huge movement of what are called the tectonic plates. And in the area of the Himalayas, there was a huge collision of tectonic plates jutting up mountain ranges. That's how mountain ranges are formed, by the movement of the tectonic plates. And it just so happens to be that Mount Everest is the tallest peak in the Himalayan mountain range. 
So Mount Everest at one time wasn't Mount Everest. It was lower, covered with water. And then after the flood, it jutted up and became the highest peak in the world. So you don't need to have water all over the peak of Mount Everest. So when our text says the earth was formless, back to our text, it describes an uninhabitable wasteland. So there's just, it was just, you know, there just wasn't any living creature. It was uninhabitable. It was dark. It was cold. There was no food. It was not a place that things could live. The New American Standard translates the same word formless in other places as waste and futile and nothing and emptiness and chaos and meaningless and desolation, confusion, formless. Moses is just saying, yeah, the, at this point, it's just a mess. Verse 2 says the earth was void. The word means empty, devoid of all living things, plants and animals. Uh, Jeremiah uses this in Jeremiah 4.23 when he speaks of the judgment of God on Judah. And he says, I looked on the earth and behold, it was formless and void and to the heavens and they had no light. And the whole picture that, that Jeremiah is painting here is that he sees the future judgment of God and a vision or whatever. And it, everything is killed. It's formless and void. Everything's knocked down. Everything's burnt. So there's smoke and it's dark and the sun's not shining through. It's just a wasteland. That's the whole idea. It's not a place you can live at this point. Look at towards the beginning of verse 2. And darkness is over the surface of the deep. There was no light at this time, no sun, no stars or moon to reflect the light of the sun. Which is one of the reasons why the earth was uninhabitable. Because without life, light, you can't have life. Because light is necessary for plants and to sustain the food chain. Though the text speaks of the earth, it may mean just the raw materials and the location of what God is doing and that there isn't even a globe yet. There's just matter, elements and water in the emptiness of space. You say, well, why is that? I'm going to show you in a minute. But the text speaks of darkness. Notice being over the surface of the deep. Um, the word surface, as the New American Standard Bible and the New International Version have it, or face, as the English Standard Version or the New King James Version have it, is literally in Hebrew before the face of it. It's a common Hebrew uh, idiom to just describe in the presence of or before the face of, that you're standing there, you're, it's before you. The word deep, according to all the Hebrew lexicons, means the deep of the waters, the oceans. But I don't think that's how it is here. Now, usually when you go against all the lexicons, you have to be very careful. And so I will just state, I may be wrong here. But I think there's reason to believe that what is being described here in verse 2 is not the ball of the earth. And he's saying that it was formless and void and, and there were waters. I think what he's saying is, is all that was spread out and that's why it was formless and void because it hadn't even been formed yet. You say, well, where do you get that from? Well, turn to Proverbs chapter eight. It just so happens we have the wisest man in the world giving us some inspired commentary on this very thing. And it's pretty fascinating to see what Solomon says. Proverbs chapter eight, verse 22 in this proverb, in this chapter of Proverbs, um, wisdom, the wisdom of God is personified or it's spoken of as if it's a person. 
a personification. So Solomon personifies the wisdom of God. And and then he says this, starting in verse 22 of Proverbs 8. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. From everlasting, I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. There's our deep word right there. When he made firm the skies above. When the springs of the deep became fixed. When he set the when he set for the sea its boundary so that the waters would not transgress his command when he marked out the foundation of the earth when i was beside him as a master workman and i was daily his delight rejoicing always before him rejoicing in the world his earth and having my delight in the sons of men so solomon tells us that at first matter was created there were waters in the deep The problem is they were in the deep. The deep of what? The oceans? No. The deep of outer space. And then he says in verse 27 that God then inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. Which means on the backdrop of black outer space. So he created all the the stuff that was needed for the earth. And then he, when it says he inscribed a circle, it's talking about God making a sphere, a globe out of the earth. God created the raw materials which were floating in the deep darkness of space and then fashioned them into a sphere. Genesis 1 is very condensed and it's very possible that Moses skips that. But one of two things is certain. One, either God gave Solomon extra information about creation so that he would know that. Or two, that God gave Solomon extra insight into Genesis 1 and our text so that he describes what's being described here. That matter was created, then formed into a severe. God creating a circle on the face of the deep, not of the ocean, but a circle on the deep of outer space. Henry Morris notes, quote, elements of matter and molecules of water were present, but not yet energized. The force of gravity was not yet functioning to draw such particles together into a coherent mass with a definite form. Neither were the electromagnetic forces yet in operation and everything was in darkness. The physical universe had come into existence, but everything was still and dark, no form, no motion and no light, end quote. There was no light. Nothing living at this point. There was just a ball now, a sphere that was covered with a couple miles of water. Secondly, the Holy Spirit was moving or hovering. Look at the middle of verse 2. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So we see God, Elohim, in verse 1, and uh, which we learned before was the triune God. We went into that in some detail. Here we see the Spirit of God moving or hovering over the surface of the waters. And some have said, well, because the Hebrew word for spirit uh, and the Hebrew word for wind are the same word, what we have here is just a strong wind that's blowing. All, All Moses is saying here is there was a strong wind blowing over the surface of the deep. And yet this doesn't work. 
Why? Several reasons. First, the Bible teaches the Holy Spirit is God and God is mentioned in verse 1. Secondly, the Bible teaches the Holy Spirit participated in creation. We looked at scriptures on that before. Third, wind doesn't hover or flutter over the surface of the water. The word surface in verse 2 is the same word used earlier in the verse and means before the face of and the presence of. The Holy Spirit was, was there and the waters of the sphere of the earth were before it. The word moving might be translated hovering or fluttering. It's used of birds of prey, uh, like uh, eagles as they're helping their young fly. Or if you've ever seen a kite hawk in action, they're kind of cool. A kite hawks will hover and they'll fly around and they'll go to a field and then they'll flap their wings like a big hummingbird, not as fast and not as cool or uh, agile, but they'll be able to hover in one place. And as they hover there, they look down in the field and they're looking for a mouse or a gopher or something to swoop down and eat. Well, this is the same concept used here that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters. He's looking out over the sphere of the earth, the deep of the oceans at this point, because God has formed it into a circle, a sphere. Third, God made light. Look at verse three. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. These are the first words uttered by God that are recorded in the Bible. Psalm 33 verse 9 says, For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And God just called light into being. And remember our little Latin lesson from last week? He called it into being ex nihilo. Yeah, you got to remember that. It'll be on the test. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. He calls it into being out of nothing. He just speaks and things come into being. Now you can imagine how cool it was if you could just be there and you just, you're, you're, you're in the pitch black. It's like being in a pitch black room and somebody flips the light switch on and just, psh, all the darkness is just shattered. It's all driven away. And since there's no stars, no planet, no moon, nothing, the only thing you see is this big, probably cobalt blue ball in the middle of the blackness of outer space. Light is fundamental to our existence, but most take it for granted. It heats the world. It causes plants to grow. uh, It makes things visible. It has many practical uses. It has really cool properties. It travels really fast, 186,000 miles per second. That is fast. I don't know how fast your car would do the quarter mile and if you could travel that fast, but it's just a blip. It's many colors. Light has many colors in it. It has invisible colors in it uh, called the invisible light spectrum, like ultraviolet, which we use to sterilize things. Uh, You know, hot tubs and, you know, toothbrushes, all kinds of things are using uh, UV light, ultraviolet light to kill bacteria. Not only that, you have infrared uh, light spectrum, which is like the far red side, which is invisible. And we feel that in the form of heat. When I'm up here and they have those lights on, I'm feeling infrared heat from those lights i can feel it i can especially feel it in the summer but you know you you have heat sometimes you have lights in your bathroom and you turn them on and you feel the heat that's infrared we feel heat in invisible wavelengths that come to us infrared heat not only that light curves when it goes around objects if you shine a sharp beam of light next to a very sharp edge you'll discover that it doesn't make a perfectly sharp line on the wall but the light actually curves a little bit when it goes around they don't know why it just does 
Not only that, uh, it has the properties of waves. Uh, they're electromagnetic wavelengths. So it has wavelength and each color of light breaks up into a different wavelength and you have the whole color of the rainbows. And what's really cool is, is you know, if you've ever done any painting and you know what happens if you take a little yellow and a little brown and a little red and a little blue and a little green, you mix them all together, you get really ugly brown, Right? But when you take the colors of the rainbow and you add them together, you get white light, what we see in this room right now. Isn't that cool? That is cool. Not only that, the, the waves of light, not only are they waves, but the waves are composed of little packets of light called photons. And they have properties uh, that are characteristic of particles. So light is very cool. And that's why when you see it in the scriptures, because light and darkness cannot coexist, they're just, light always chases the darkness away. It's used of the holiness of God, of Christ, uh, as, as a metaphor for truth. Listen to how Paul uses it, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It's just one example where he says, For God who said, light shall, shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So he says, this is what happened. Just like God said in Genesis 1, 2, you know, he speaks light and it just, it just drives away everything. And all of a sudden the earth appears with light all around it, shining all around it. We'll talk about that in a second. Shining all around it. He says, in the same way, when we come to Christ, God puts his truth in us. And that truth begins to drive out the darkness that's within us. The sin that's within us so that we understand the truth. Lies are driven away. Well, on the first day, God called light into existence and it wasn't coming from the sun or a moon or a star. You say, well, where was it coming from then? Light has to have a source. It was coming from God. It was either coming from the person of God or just God made it come. You say, well, oh, come on now. God can do anything he wants. He can do anything he wants. And God, when he spoke, just the darkness was shattered it chased away, and now you see this, this probably cobalt blue ball in the vastness of space. And look at verse 4, and God saw that the light was good. Seven times in Genesis 1, it speaks of his creation being good. In fact, verse 31 says at the end, after it was all done, it was very good. Keep in mind, God is infinitely wise, all-knowing, and all-powerful. Consider that after making the material matter of the earth, he didn't say it was good. But when he created light, he said that was good. Light was the first thing God said was good. It was so important to have light shining, revealing, heating, enabling life to exist. And of course, scoffers at this point like to say, well, there was no sun until verse 16. Uh, so how could there be any light? And some have tried to get around it in a pretty feeble way. They've said, well, there was actually a sun there. You just couldn't see it. But you could see the light. I mean, come on. That is a desperate one commentary. I thought, oh, pal, just don't say, say you don't know before you bring out an excuse like that. Um, but it's true. The sun doesn't show up until verse 16. So, so how do you solve that paradox? How do you have light coming from no source or no sun? And there's no stars, so there's no luminary. So how do you get light? Well, besides the fact that God can do anything he wants... There is an answer for this. 
You could just tell people, well, God just made light appear and shine on the globe of the earth. And of course, they're always going to say, oh, well, you Christians, you know, as soon as you get into a hard problem, you just pull out the God card. And we do. We pull out the God card and we also pull out the word of God card. Turn to Revelation 21. We'll pull out the word of God card too. And uh, we'll show you how this works. It's like at the very end of the New Testament, the very end of your Bible. Revelation chapter 22, here the Apostle John is talking about the new Jerusalem. It has come down out of heaven. He's been talking about it since verse 11, but we're going to look at verse 25 and following. And notice how John explains about the new Jerusalem. He says in Revelation 21, verse 22, these words here. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. There will be light all around the globe of the earth simultaneously at once, not from the sun or moon or stars. Look down at Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. And there will be no longer any night, for they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Notice, both of these texts tell us there's no sun and there's no light, but there's light. There's no sun shining and making a light source, but what happens is, is there's light everywhere, all around the globe, all at once, just like our text. Fourth, God separated the light from the darkness. Look at the end of verse 3, where God separated the light from the darkness. We might wonder how he did that. Uh, I can't tell you. But I think several things can be deduced from what is said here. At this point, light exists. It's shining on all sides of the globe at once from whatever its source is. Whether it's just coming from nowhere and shining or from the glory of God, which is radiating around the earth, I don't know. Then God separated the light from the darkness. Remember, the perspective here is from the earth. And so what he's saying is, is at this point, there was light shining at all sides. And now there's light and darkness. So half of the earth is dark and the other half is light. Like it is today. And God made that happen, which tells us he brought the light and brought it around to one side. So one half would be lit up and the other half would not. He most likely started the earth spinning on its axis at this point so that it would go through the succession of days. Look at verse five. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So now you have day and night, which is a rotation of the earth. And by the way, It takes 24 hours for the earth to rotate. And it's always taken 24 hours for the earth to rotate. Now think about that. Who keeps it rotating so perfectly? Who keeps it twisting on its axis and orbiting around the sun? With perfect precision. Perfect precision. Even though there's forces and meteorites crashing into it. Who adjusts the world? 
Think about that. You think it just happens? Well, how come the earth doesn't just fly off into some other orbit? Who holds it into that perfect orbit so it never changes? That's not evolutionists. It's God. It's also interesting uh, to consider that the earth hasn't slowed down. It hasn't sped up. It's just exactly the same as it's always been. I just find that very interesting. Look at the middle of verse 5. And there was evening and there was morning one day. And as we learned earlier, some have denied the word day means day. We're taking the Bible for what it says and what many other passages say. And at this point, we just have this spinning sphere covered with water in the vastness of outer space. And light is shining on it from one direction. So half is lit up and half isn't. So what have we learned? One, we've seen that the first day of creation, God made matter. Secondly, that the Holy Spirit was overseeing or hovering over this. Third, that God made light. And then God separated the light from the darkness so that the earth had its half lit up and half in the dark state that we still have today, night and day. And that's all we have time to look at today. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful that we could just look a little bit at one day of creation. How fascinating it is to consider what really happened there. I'm sure when we get to heaven, you'll probably play a video for us and we can see it. But until then, Father, may we believe your word. May we not let men whose views are ever changing dissuade us from trusting in you. Help us to remember that men are fallen and sin cursed and they're futile and their speculations and their foolish heart are, hearts are darkened and they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil and that you are holy, you are true, you are good, you are all-knowing and all-powerful and you have revealed your truth to us in the pages of scripture so that we can know the truth. May we not feel compelled or even just a little bit um, pressured to conform uh, the Bible to accommodate the views, the ever-changing views of men. But Father, may we just believe the truth. The truth is revealed in the pages of Scripture. And let you be found true, though every man be a liar. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.